Hello, it's Thursday the 15th of October. I'm John Dennis. Today, the documentary that lifts the lid on the deceit of celebrity journalism. What he did was phone up the gotter story numbers in tabloid newspapers, gave them information which was entirely fabricated, completely untrue about a number of celebrities, um, never accepted any money for this, but then watched how in the next day the stories appeared in the newspapers. Also today, a breakthrough in scientists' understanding of how genes work in cells that may help fight disease. If the human genome is your flat pack from Ikea, then the epigenome is really the instruction manual that shows you how they go together. And Simon Hoggart's view of Brown versus Cameron in Prime Minister's Questions. It began in a way I've never seen Prime Minister's Questions begin at all with a listing very sombre, almost like the tolling of a bell, of all 37 servicemen who'd been killed in Afghanistan. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. Now, a look at the headlines with Bill Overton. Gunmen have attacked several police buildings in Pakistan. In the attacks in the eastern city of Lahore, several have been killed and others taken hostage. There's been another suicide bombing at a police station in the town of Kohat. Police and civilians are among the dead. Meanwhile, refugees are streaming out of South Wazaristan as the government bombs the region where the Taliban have their stronghold. The Arctic Ocean will become an open sea every summer within 10 years, a survey from Cambridge University has shown. The Catlin Arctic Survey team, led by explorer Penn Haddo, measured the thickness of ice across the Beaufort Sea in the North Pole. The report says man's taken the lid off the northern end of his planet and we can't put that lid back on again. The UN reports a billion people worldwide are now hungry. It says parents in Africa's poorest countries are cutting back on school clothes and medical care to give their children one meal a day. The campaign group ActionAid believes one child dies of malnutrition every six seconds. The United States stock market's risen sharply as the bank JP Morgan announced an increase in profits and Goldman Sachs is expected to follow suit today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average went above 10,000 for the first time in a year. It was followed by trading in the Asian markets, which has taken prices there up by 1%. But in Britain, The Guardian's been told Lloyd's Banking Group, which had to be rescued by the government, needs still more money. Having been given £17 billion to save it from collapse, the bank is now asking for another £5 billion. That's the story on our paper's front page this morning, while The Times reports a year after the crunch, it's boom time again for bankers. The FT also takes the banking success line with its headline, JP Morgan Profits Lift the Dow. The Times goes on to report investment bankers expect to enjoy a record bonus season. The Independent chooses the gloomy road, though, with a report on the opening of a court case against bankers from the failed company Bear Stearns. It says the case is the people versus Wall Street amidst the economic wreckage after 7 million job losses. The popular papers all carry front page pictures of a crying Leona Lewis attacked at a book signing in London. Leona hit by mad fan, says the mirror. Crazed thug batters Leona, that's the sun, which says the man was grinning as he hit her. And finally, the MP's expenses row goes on. The Telegraph gives over its whole front page to the case it makes against Conservative MP David Wilshire. The headline reads, MP pays £100,000 to the company he owns with his girlfriend. And our paper says the return of controversy over expenses this week was expected. We report the leader of the House of Commons, Harriet Harman, was warned by Labour whips that the leg inquiry was, quote, going off the rails. For more news and sport throughout the day, guardian.co.uk. Star Suckers is the name of a documentary made by Chris Atkins. As part of an argument for improved regulation of the press, he's filmed a scam in which he dupes Fleet Street into printing fake stories about celebrities. There's a clip on The Guardian's website today. 
Hello, Shabbos. Hello. Um, sorry, is that the star? I just got a call from a friend of mine. She was at a party at Amy Winehouse's place last mm-hmm. night. They were having like a jamming session. Sort of playing guitars and stuff. They blew the fuses completely in the house. And Amy goes off and tries to fix it with a mate of hers. And he got a big shock. And she just jolted and then like, apparently singed her hair. <laughs> And I was just like, she lives in Barnet. How cool is that? That's very funny, Emma. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She can give you a bit of money for this, Emma, if you you want. The Guardian's Paul Lewis has seen the film. He wanted to make a film about celebrity culture and the way that the media, as he sees it, exploits celebrity culture. Um, And he's travelled all over the world making this film. And the part that we're interested in particularly is, is a stunt that he executed in the UK against the tabloid press. And what he did was phone up the gotter story numbers in tabloid newspapers, gave them information which was entirely fabricated, completely untrue about a number of celebrities, um, never accepted any money for this, but then watched how in the next day the stories appeared in the newspapers. And he was offered money for it. He was offered money for it, yeah. And he's recorded all of his telephone conversations, and I've lis- listened to them. He was offered up to £600 for a lead story in one of the, uh, the gossip columns, but he said he never accepted the money for ethical reasons. He believes it still illustrates the point that journalists don't fact-check and that when it comes to celebrity journalism, standards are quite low. And he sets out four kind of rules of thumb, but which he reckons that if you follow these rules, you can pretty much guarantee getting a story published in the tabloid press. Well, this is his opinion. He says that if if the story is funny, if it's not litigious, and if you have a name and a telephone number... If it's not too nasty. Not too nasty, exactly. Because if it's litigious, the newspaper won't take the risk. And his stories were quite frivolous and silly. Trivial bits of tittle-tattle. We've all seen these kind of stories in the papers. Yeah, exactly. And he believes that if you've got a name and a telephone number, they will print it. And, you know, his evidence for that is these particular six stories that he printed in, you know, much of the daily tabloid press in the UK. And this does matter, doesn't it? Because what it means is that people can't trust what they read in the papers. Well, as far as it goes, yes. I mean, I, I, you know, we've done the story. We'll put it out there, see what people think. I mean, he definitely believes that they can't trust what they read in the newspapers. The newspapers haven't given us any comment. They declined to comment on this. But I would expect that senior editors in those newspapers would disagree with him. They would say, perhaps, that he's employed the same kind of skullduggery and duplicity that he alleges is rife in their own newsrooms in order to prove his point. But we'll see what the public debate says about that. Now, the clip that people can see at guardian.co.uk slash media um, today um, is just a small part of this film. Is there? Can you give us a taste of what else people might see in this documentary film? Well, it's as I said, it's it's really quite broad ranging and he goes to the states he i don't know how much of it he would want me to give away but he goes out <laughs> to the states and he films uh the kind of celebrity angle out there he traveled to i think it was lithuania where there's a really interesting celebrity story out there as well and then there was more on the british tabloid press and we will be running more stories i think on that um in the coming day or so that's Paul Lewis. Well, Chris Atkins' film, Star Suckers, opens on the 28th of October. Janine Gibson is the editor of Guardian.co.uk. I asked her whether there's a culture of failing to check the facts of celebrity stories. We all know we live in an era of ever-multiplying outlets via the internet, from newspapers, celebrity magazines, and many, many, many different media, all fighting over an incredibly small supply of actually genuine news stories around celebrities. Not that many interesting things things happen to celebrities on a daily basis. So the standard for what constitutes an interesting story around celebrity, it gets lower and lower and lower, trips over on pavement near photographer, is actually, you know, a reasonable thing to put on page three of your newspaper these days. 
in that situation, of course, the burden of proof, if you like, for publishing gets lower as well. And some of this is relatable to the internet. You can see that when a million blogs will recite something, it would never occur to you on the internet to check the sourcing of that story. You would just, you would just reprint it, just put it out there. And, um, and there is no consequence. So clearly that culture spreads up as well as down, if you know what I mean, through the food chain. And uh, the newspaper diary columns are running on the same principle. Does it matter? Because you know, the public presumably sees a lot of this stuff. It has a vast appetite for this stuff. But you know, it doesn't always believe most of the stuff it reads or much of the stuff it reads. There's two points to that. Um, one is essentially, no, it doesn't matter. Nobody believes anything, nobody in the papers. So therefore, you shouldn't bother even attempting to deny it. And I think that is becoming a prevalent part of celebrity culture, if you like. The cover lines on OK will be the exact opposite to the cover lines on Hello and nobody really bats an eyelid. The converse of that, of course, is what starts with you don't believe what you read on celebrity pages incredibly quickly becomes you don't believe what you read on the comment pages or what you read on the front pages or what you read or what you see on the television. Um, And we sort of degenerate as a culture into one that does not believe reporting anymore and places no value on reporting. And there is a certain crisis in news journalism at the moment, which I believe is is part of that, um, that sort of degeneration of, of faith and trust in reporting. And you can see it in how do we fund journalism, you can see it in declining circulations, and you can see it in the sort of debates in Parliament around is there even a value to local newspapers, national newspapers, public service broadcasting, local radio, all these all these issues essentially come down to is there a public value? And in, in this situation, I think value equals trust. So I don't want to be pompous about it. Does it matter whether or not Amy Winehouse's bee, um, beehive was caught on fire via an electric circuit? Probably not. And I'm sure she couldn't care less as long as her name's in the papers. But on some level, if we don't believe what we read in the papers, then something quite intrinsically important has been lost. I mean, The Guardian obviously does cover celebrity stories as well. Um, we've got an interview with Dwight York coming up later in today's podcast. You know, we're, we're guilty of it as well. But how does The Guardian approach reporting on celebrities, given that there is an appetite, even among Guardian readers, to find out about them? I don't think we do a a great deal of reporting on celebrities in the strictest sense. Um, We don't tend to uh, do a great deal of reporting on celebrity movements. We're quite um, stern about paparazzi photographs. I don't think we use those. Um, And I don't think we would generally countenance stories of the the sort that we're talking about in this this expose. In fact, I'm fairly confident we don't. Do we do interviews with public figures? Do we quote what they say? And do we, you know, like to embrace celebrity culture and comment on it through columns like Lost in Showbiz and Marina Hyde, who I think is, you know, a wonderful writer, completely cuts through a lot of this. Absolutely. And I'm sure that we will have recited in some of our coverage of the celebrity world some things that probably aren't as true as they might be in the in the general scheme of things. And you can there is a great danger in getting too pious about different sorts of journalism. On the other hand, what this film exposes is a cynical and routine culture of it couldn't matter less whether or not it is true. And I'm absolutely confident that the, the Guardian does not practice that. 
Janine Gibson. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash media. Also on The Guardian's website today. I'm Andrew Dixon, the arts editor of guardian.co.uk. This week is the biggest week in the contemporary art calendar. It's the Freeze Art Fair and the fringe of assorted arts events that are happening this week. We'll be following the lot on guardian.co.uk. We'll have updates from a dealer behind the scenes at the fair. Uh, We'll have coverage of all the art events that are happening around that. The Power Art 100 Art Reviews list of the 100 most powerful people in the art world. And we'll have video, audio, the rest of it. All at guardian.co.uk forward slash art. Peter Bottomley MP said yesterday he was planning to report the law firm Carter Ruck to the Law Society over an attempt to prevent The Guardian reporting a question tabled in the Commons. Bottomley made the announcement in a question to Gordon Brown during Prime Minister's questions, the first since the summer break. The PM described the case, which centres on the dumping of toxic waste in the Ivory Coast by the oil firm Trafigura, as unfortunate. Peter Bottomley... Experts in reputation management are reported as saying that their original injunction gave them, Carter Ruck, the power to prevent what was said in Parliament being reported. No court should grant such an order, and I intend to report them to the Law Society for asking for the injunction. Would the Prime Minister see if it's possible that any court that grants a secret injunction or an emergency injunction should have a copy placed in the Library of the House of Commons and in the press gallery here, if necessary hiding the name of a child or in grave national security, And will he also ask if any such emergency order is reviewed the next working day at the Court of Appeal? Well, I I, I may say I'm pleased he has raised this issue because I think it's important that uh, I and the Justice Secretary can can say something to him about the concerns that he's raised. Uh, This is an issue where an injunction has been awarded, but it's been awarded in the context where it has to remain uh, secret and uh, people are not uh, told what the outcome uh, is uh, generally. Uh, The Justice Secretary has uh, talked to the parties uh, concerned. He is looking into this issue. He will discuss the matter personally with uh, the Honourable Member, and I hope that on the basis of what he suggests, progress can be made, not just in this case, but more generally, to clear up what is an unfortunate area of the law. Viewing proceedings in Parliament yesterday was The Guardian's parliamentary sketch writer, Simon Hoggart. A very strange PMQs are largely devoted to Afghanistan, although it was interesting that uh, David Cameron, the Tory leader, brought in his newest recruit, uh, young Chloe Smith, the victor of Norwich North, who sat right behind him, not the normal place. Normally the seat behind the leader is occupied by his parliamentary private secretary, but the message was to be sent out through the cathode ray tubes of the nation that uh, she was young, she She was a winner. She was the face of the new Toryism. It was a little bit of gloating, I think. Anyway, it began in a way I've never seen Prime Minister's questions begin at all with a listing, very sombre, almost like the tolling of a bell, of all 37 servicemen who'd been killed in Afghanistan since the House last met, which was 12 weeks ago. So... um, Clearly, this was a very sombre and very affecting moment, though there was a certain irony, which, of course, nobody was allowed to point out, which was that the most currently reviled institution in the entire country was paying tribute to the most revered or at least the most admired institution in the country. So um, uh, it did have a certain uh, ironic piquancy there, I thought. Uh, David Cameron pursued the question of Afghanistan over and over again, were the troops getting enough men, enough equipment and so forth. Um, But of course he's in a bit of a bind in that he can't at any point say that he doesn't entirely support what we are doing there. 
it was uh, left up to Nick Clegg, the Liberal leader, to be a little bit more sceptical. MPs are very, very concerned about the corruption of the Karzai government in Afghanistan and really, really wonder why so many British men are being uh, sent to their deaths in order to support uh, a um, government which is, by any standards, uh, infinitely more corrupt than anything we have in our own parliament. Infinitely more. There was The thing went on rather like this, as I say, in a very sombre mood. The usual yelling and shouting and exchange of fake statistics was absent for once till at the very very end uh, this curious moment in which uh, sir michael spicer who is one of the oldest tory mps been around for a very long time just stood up michael spicer yeah. will he confirm that he will soldier on to the bitter end <laughs> we, we have got we have got a program for government Unfortunately, the other side do not. Order! Order! Statement of the Prime Minister. Simon Hoggart. My name's John Dennis. Coming up in Guardian Daily, footballer Dwight York on racism and Ron Atkinson. And Jordan, that's the model, not the Hashemite kingdom. I've I've tried in the past to to get to know my son. close to it a few occasions and, and um, kind of hit a brick wall in many ways and her, her mom has made my life pretty hell for, for a long period of time. First, epigenetics. Nope, me neither. Ian Sample, our science correspondent, says it's a study of how genes are orchestrated inside human cells. And now scientists in the United States have hailed a major milestone that promises to revolutionise scientists' understanding of human development. So the Human Genome Project basically gave us all of the genetic letters, if you like, the sort of the, the book of life as we tended to call it. What that doesn't tell you, though, is how the genes they make up are actually used. Now, you can have a list of genes. We know there are about 20, 25,000 genes in a human body, and you know almost every cell has all of those, those genes inside. But knowing the genes itself isn't enough. What you need to know is how active they are in different parts of the body and at different times throughout your life, and they all change. Now, what controls that is another layer of biological material that's wrapped around your DNA. You can think of them as either traffic lights on genes or volume controls. So say you might have a gene for uh, a certain type of growth development, the volume control might be set to zero once you're full adult, but high up when you're young because it's, you know, it's producing bits of your body to make you grow. But the research that these guys have done at the Salk Institute in La Jolla in San Diego is the first human epigenome as they call it. epi meaning on it's uh, a lot of uh, chemical information on top of our genetic makeup and it really just tells you how genes are used if the human genome is kind of your flat pack from ikea your 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 you know your, your building blocks then the epigenome is really the instruction instruction manual that shows you how they go together and uh, this is the first instalment, if you like, of, of this um, long-term research into the epigenome. That's right. Last year, the, um, the US National Institutes of Health uh, doled out $190 million to a whole bunch of labs around the country and even elsewhere to really nail down the human epigenome because it's, it is hugely important. It, it's what controls how your DNA is used in the body. And this is the first paper to come out of um, a very prominent group to give us the first sort of snapshot of that instruction manual, if you like. And how does it affect the treatment of diseases? Well, there are some really interesting things about epigenetics. 
it if it goes wrong, then your development will more than likely uh, be messed up. Now that's one level. The other thing is that as an adult or even even younger, your interaction with the environment can affect your epigenome. So it can alter how your genes are expressed. Now that means that uh, say if you smoke, it may be damaged to the epigenome that causes you to get lung cancer. There are some suggestions that even what you eat can affect your epigenome, and so that can lead on to diseases as well. And it really is a new frontier for genetics because uh, scientists are really just understanding this and feeling their way. It's all quite tentative at the moment, but it's going to be hugely important in the future. Ian Sample. Dwight York, the former Manchester United footballer and father of Jordan's child, has published his autobiography. He told The Guardian's Hannah Poole about playing for Aston Villa under Ron Atkinson. Big Ron was sacked as a TV pundit after racist remarks about another black player were broadcast around the world. My first initial period at, at, at Aston Villa was a, a sort of learning curve for me. And when Ron came by and be the manager there, then... That really taught me a lot. In his first year, I was his top scorer, what people failed to understand. The first year, I played quite a lot. And I finished Aston Villa top scorer that year. The second year and the third year, I find it very difficult because I wasn't playing as regularly. Um, I find his style of management was hard to, uh, to, to come by. I didn't quite understand it. But then again, that, that was all educational for me. But I stuck with it and I stuck with Ron and Ron stuck with me because he could have easily got rid of me. And uh, in the long run, what he has done is made me into a stronger person to be more determined. And that's, I've got to be very grateful for that. And, but as I said, that was a very learning curve in my footballing career. Were you surprised by his racist outburst later on? Yeah, and, and, and uh, I think it just took us all by surprise. I mean, uh, I've played on the run, and uh, I must say that um, he was the first manager that I've seen have so many black players in his team. I think the biggest disappointment is that when he said it, and in the manner he said it, and the way he said it, um, I, can't, I can't defend Ron, you know, as much as I would like to stand there and go, yeah, yeah, he's good. He's been good to me. He's been this. He's been that. And he, you could see all the players I've mentioned play to his football team. So he clearly hasn't got an issue with it. But to do it in the manner he did, I can't condone that. And I've got to, I've got to, I've got to be truthful to myself rather than try and protect him because I couldn't. Did he use language like that at the time? Looking back on it in my younger days, yeah, maybe he had, but, you know, never thought anything of it because I had a, a, a vision, I knew where I wanted to go and little remarks here or there wouldn't wouldn't faze me um, uh, because I was such a, a happy-go-lucky kind of guy and people would say some things to me and I just never really take it on board. It's like passed through one ear and gone out the other. So he, he might have done things in the past that maybe was a little bit out of order, but... To my eyes, it, it didn't bother me that much because I knew that I wanted something bigger and I wasn't going to upset the boss in, in doing so. Now, the book is, um, is dedicated to your two sons. Um, and the first dedication is to Harvey. And, and it reads, so he may know the truth. What, what do you mean by that? Well, because um, I've, I've tried in the past to, to, to get to know my son. Um, got close to it a few occasions and, and um, kind of hit a brick wall in many ways and 
her, her mom has made my life pretty hell for, for a long period of time with some of the comments that she had made about me, the allegations she's made against me. Uh, and I felt it was hard done by. And um, my, my advisors, my legal team, my, my people who were close, we, we worked. We were behind closed doors so many times to try and make this work. And yet this woman constantly, constantly, uh, for the past five years, constantly and probably more, you know, barnished my name out there as such a bad person and I'm not caring and all of these allegations that I've heard. With the book coming out, that just wanted to let him know that I'm always here and it's just a matter of being restricted that is um, keep us apart. Do you think you've been a good dad? I'd like to think so. I mean, I like to think so. I, of course, I've not um, made all the right decisions, and I'm not saying that I've not made mistakes along the way. Of course, I have. Do you feel guilty about not having seen more of him? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, of course. I love to spend a lot of time with my kid. I love to have an input in his upbringing, without a doubt. Dwight York talking to Hannah Poole. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening.